0: You know, I got dressed, I put on lip gloss, and then I realized, oh, wait.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man.
0: I'm wearing a nice sweater. (laughs) (laughs) Video time. (laughs) I'm, like, in my
2: pajamas. I'm so sorry.
1: Welcome to Worldcasting, where we discuss real, made-up things. I'm your host, Adam, and today's episode is going to be a little bit different. We're going to be speaking not just about world-building, but also about publishing and culture. And that's because we've got the founder and creative director of the Dominican Writers Association, Angie, here with us. So I won't take the final spot here. I'll introduce myself real quick, just so you all know who's speaking. Again, my name's Adam. I am a UX and UI designer, a writer. I'm the editor-in-chief here at Worldbuilding Magazine, and a bunch of other things. I'm another podcast. You can go listen to those and hear my voice there if you want. We've also got Zyvi and Angie with us. Would you guys mind introducing yourselves?
2: Yeah, my name is Zyvi. I'm an editor at Worldbuilding Magazine,
0: um, and occasionally I show up on the podcast. Hi, everybody. My name is Angie. And like Adam said, I am the founder and creative director of Dominican Writers Association.
1: Thank you so much again for coming on. I, I really appreciate it.
0: No, thank you, guys. This has been a, quite an experience so far. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so yeah, I kind of want to just start off the top. And since we have you here with us, Angie, I'm interested in hearing from you a bit about kind of the publishing side of things and what you do there for example, could you just kind of give us a rundown of what you do at the Writers Association?
0: Sure. So Dominican Writers Association was first created to give, to highlight the works of the literary works of Dominican American writers specifically. And this came about because as a 20 year old, I had still not been exposed to writers who looked like me, who sounded like me, not even Latino writers. So it wasn't specifically just Dominicans, but even Latino writers. And to me, I thought that that was such a huge disservice that not even, you know, in my writing workshops in school or in my literature classes in school, we've never read any Latino authors, um, let alone any Dominican authors. So in my 20s, I went and did my research and I read all the Dominican authors that I found, which were just a handful of them. And after that, you know, um, I'm, I've always written poetry myself. I've been a writer since I was 12. I started engaging more with the writing community, um, with open mics. I've hosted open mics. I had a open mic, um, a spoken word collective, which was being hosted out of my apartment initially in the Bronx, and then it moved into a venue in Washington Heights. So during those times that I was hosting these events, I was meeting these wonderful Dominican writers, and even who were just starting to blow up. And one of those people was Elizabeth Acevedo, who I found via YouTube doing my research. And Elizabeth was still doing poetry slams. Um She wasn't very well known. she was she wasn't as known as she is now. And I remember, you know, that I invited her to participate in an event that I was hosting in our local bookstore uptown. And she was, of course, still living in Washington, and um, I said, "Hey, what would it take for me to bring you up here?" I didn't know much about her other than her talent. I didn't know that she grew up in Harlem and, you know, and that she was familiar with New York City. But throughout the years, as, uh, you know, as maybe some of you have seen, she has blown up. She's now mm-hmm. on her third novel and she has won quite a few awards. So there's people like her that I know are, are working right now and that just didn't have the support to become you know, as known as she is. So that's what I dedicate my time to, to make sure that people get to know who these writers are, whether they are emerging and they just published their first book or they are on their second, so that people could go out and support their work and purchase their book and invite them to talks and You know, it's it's wonderful. It's a great feeling for me to know that I've introduced an author to the platform that they weren't familiar with. And then because we've done that, I see them go get invited to podcasts and other and participate in other events. And I was like, okay, wonderful. So what I'm doing is working with our audience. And the other aspect of Dominican writers is also teaching writers how to get published, whether it is in the traditional form by sending a query to a literary agent and getting represented and eventually getting their book published in the traditional manner, or whether it is to self-publish. Now, if you're you're familiar with publishing, you know that many people look down upon authors that self-publish because usually that work is not of quality. So we teach them how to make that work of quality. We teach them how to get an editor, how to get an illustrator, how to publish a book that looks professional, right? That looks as if a traditional publisher published them. And there's a way to do that. There is a way for you to be a successful self-publisher. So we work towards teaching our um, emerging writers how to go about doing that successfully. I don't know if I spoke too much, but yeah, that's- No, that was awesome.
1: (laughs) No, that's no, the that's gist
0: great. of what we do <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay awesome thank you so much
2: i remember at one point i was at one of your workshops and you were talking about how um the industry how it like there there feels like there's a bit of like discrimination against dominican writers
0: even amongst editors who are dominican i don't know if you want to talk about that or not well not necessarily dominican writers but latino authors now the mm. publishing Seventy-four percent white, right? Mm-hmm, right. So we're not generally looking for our stories, and whenever we do bring them our stories, we have to work even harder to convince you that our story is worth publishing.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: and one example that I could, you know, explain is Angie Cruz, who took maybe two to three years to get a publisher to purchase her her book *Dominicana*, and didn't feel that her book would connect to an audience. So what does that mean when they feel that way? It means that they're not investing as much money as they would with other authors, right? White authors, I'm saying. That means that your book deal is not as great as an as white authors and they're not investing their time and making sure that your book is being sold in the quantities that they it's supposed to be sold. Um and and that's pretty much unfair you know it's like yeah okay fine we'll publish you but we're only we only gonna do this much right because we don't feel your book is marketable mm-hmm. we don't feel that if we put in millions of dollars that we're actually gonna get that back
1: it feels like such an oxymoron for them to say yeah we'll publish this but <laughs> also we right. don't feel like right. it's marketable. so it's <laughs> almost like
0: we are do you a favor you know because yeah it's a good story but we don't think it's that great of a story, right? Mm-hmm. But 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 we laugh when we see that the book is picked as the um, Good Morning America's first book club choice, right? Yes, this is like, and then then we laugh when we see so many people of different cultures, not only Dominican, Mm -hmm. right, Angie and comment about this book that they can relate with that main character, because you could take the title of that book, Dominicana, and change it to a Middle Eastern country or change it to a South, South Central, you know, South American country. The, the machismo, the misogynism and the machismo that you see in that book is relatable in so many other places outside of Dominican Republic. And, you know, the domestic abuse that you read in the novel, just so many topics that are in, within that novel that are relatable. You don't need to be Latino or let alone mm-hmm. Dominican for you to be able to relate. So, you know, I get extremely happy when I see these things happening because then these publishers are like, oh, the book is selling. Like, mm-hmm. we're going to have to print more. We're going to have to pay attention more to these type of stories because yeah. people are listening to them.
2: Yeah, I think the problem probably comes, I think, from um, these publishers looking at these stories and being like, oh, these stories are different. So they can't be liked by anyone
0: that is not that part, right? right. we, So publishers feel that the only people who are reading are white people. hmm
2: right?
0: So they want us to write for the white gays, but Latinos and even black and brown folks and indigenous folks, we're not writing for white people. We're writing our stories for our people.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: So that is something that publishers need to understand that we're not writing for you. We could care less if white people are reading our stories. We do because we know that the majority of white people have no clue of what's going on outside the world. Right. Mm -hmm. Or, or what's going on in third world countries. And this is something that also happens, you know, when they get these, when our books reach the hands of editors, anything that they don't understand, they want us to rewrite it so that white people can understand it.
2: Yes. That's so like, and that's so funny because I never realized that before, but someone pointed it out to me and I was like, oh my God, you're right. Like anytime that like anything is like not something that is easily understood by white people, they make the assumption that no one will understand it who reads it. And I'm like, oh, right. wow, that's so they kind want of to
0: weird. To Footnotes and translations. And it's like, you know what? When I'm reading a book by a, a white author and I come across a word that I don't understand, I go get a dictionary. I go get yeah. that word, right? So why can't you do that with our Latino words?
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Why do we need to make it easy for you and include a glossary or a footnote so that you could understand what that word means? Right. Or then you have the other side when you have white authors, like the author who wrote American Dirt, write a Latino story and that Mm -hmm. becomes a bestseller. And Mm that gets six figures. And it's not even an authentic Latino story. Yeah. So it's like, come on, you guys got to make up your mind. Just, I mean, just the other day I was speaking to an author, and we were like, she she does a lot of translations, and we were just like, you know what? It's funny that our stories are only valid when written in English,
2: mm-hmm.
0: not in Spanish. But then when we write them in English, you want the book translated to Spanish. <laughs> How? <laughs> yeah. So, oh, so now it's good enough for you to translate to Spanish. Like, it, it is just so mind-boggling, the, the things that we have to face in the publishing industry. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's ridiculous. It's just, I'm waiting for the time that we have more Black and brown people representing our stories in the publishing industry so that we could get our stories out there.
2: Yeah, and I, I want to touch back on that element you are talking about with Dominicana in that, like, you know, we we feel... At least I feel like what is seen typically is that because these stories are different, people make the assumption that, you know, no one can relate to this story unless they're Dominican. And in that way, they kind of dehumanize Dominicans because they're saying that your human struggles are so different because you're Dominican that they are unrelatable. Mm -hmm. And that is, eh, that's just really,
0: that just feels really gross. I don't need you to validate my experience. I lived my experience. Like this is a real experience, whether you witnessed it or not. Right. Yeah. Right. So who are you to tell me that I need to rewrite my experience just so you could understand it?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Like why, you know, um, I remember going into a writer's conference two years ago and the topic was, you know, um, editors that act, that don't believe that certain experience or circumstances have occurred to you and they're like that does not sound realistic yeah right yeah. just because they have no clue really right it's like a cultural so, gap yeah. like a yeah. uh, step out of that bubble therefore it didn't occur that way you need to treat mm-hmm. That.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: yeah i'm I'm currently reading a memoir by um uh, michael Jala he's a musician i've listened to his music for years now i think since high school and he came out with this memoir i think earlier this year accompanied by a new album which was awesome The, the, the whole topic of not believing the real story i remember like in describing this book to some people i've told them that it almost feels like a fantasy novel because the very first thing that happens is like as a five-year-old kid, he is taken out of a cult and it just feels so different to everything that I've seen or am used to. But like, I, I know that it happened. I know that Sinanon was a real thing and it, there's, there's definitely this um, sensation that this almost feels too fantastical, mm-hmm. but like you have to kind of get past that. And uh, understand like this is a real person's story. Like this, this kind of stuff happens, and, and I think if you're able to do that, that's only going to broaden your understanding of the world and of people in it. And you know, if you are a writer in turn, that helps you uh, like create or mm-hmm. write mm-hmm. characters right. better.
0: Right. I feel that it, it's it's you know in the con in the context of world building. Saivi, that you brought up the the topic of what should writers be doing. I think it's so important that we not only read our stories, but we read other people's story because that's how we gain an understanding of the experiences yeah. and what's going on in the world. We can't just be stuck in this small bubble of our world and not open ourselves up to everything else. Right. And because that's how we learn. And sometimes you read something and or you're, whether it's whether you're reading a fiction book or a book on craft, but you you understand that there are other ways to go about doing things. Right. Mm-hmm. And as writers, we do need to read. I remember when you and I first met, um, Zyvi, you were mentioning the books and I was like, wow, that is great. Please send me the list because I want to read them. Right. Um, And they don't have to be Dominican writers, but the fact that these authors are writing about these in in this manner and of these experience, it's something that we could learn from.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's also like, it's really, it's really also interesting to talk about it in terms of like, you know, us Dominican Dominicans. We have to, you know, not only think about our Dominicanness and Dominican writers, but also think about the broader landscape. And in the same way, um, people of other ethnicities might also have to reach out and um, look for other voices. But there's a key distinction in that it's so much easier for us to look outside of our worlds because. The mainstream is not our stories, and so it's very easy for us to learn and experience other people's experiences. Whereas, if you're like I don't know, like me, yeah, if you like Adam, it's like everything <laughs> is like mm, most of what you see is going to reflect your own experiences, and so it's a lot harder. You have to look more intentionally to find differing stories, or at least um, it's a bit easier to do so now. I think because we're seeing yeah. a lot more intentional diversity. Yeah, it's, I don't know, I think that's important to keep in mind for listeners, because I I think that's just like an important thing to keep in mind, whether you are someone who whose voice is typically not heard. And you might like feel weird or guilty about looking for your own voices. Or if you're someone who is usually heard, and don't know how to find other voices, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah,
0: I agree. Yes, totally. Totally.
1: I will say there are some hidden gems within those little local bookstores that are in your town. Uh, I was visiting uh, one of them a few years back, and I ended up picking up a book from there, which I can't remember the name of at the moment. But I intentionally picked it up because, you know, number one, it had a pretty art uh, on the cover. But also, it was by, I think it was an Icelandic author, and... It was a genre I hadn't really read much of either. So it's like, oh, a person from a different country who I haven't read people from that country's work before and also a genre I'm not super familiar with. So I ended up picking up and uh, every now and then I I will do that. And some of my favorite stories, and this is partly due to uh, what I was asked to read during my time in college, but like one of my favorite stories that I've told people about multiple times at this point, I've (laughs) maybe even mentioned it on the podcast, the Dewbreaker by Edwidge John mm. yeah, I, love, I love her, um, Which her. is, yeah, it's fantastic. I would highly recommend it if you haven't checked it out. Um, it's a series of linked fictional short stories, uh, all based on real events that happened both within and without Haiti. And the whole story, like all the stories take place going kind of backwards through time. So you see like modern day, like 2010 or whenever it was published. Uh, And then the next story is like in the 1990s or something showing that main character's parents. And then it continuously goes backwards in time until you kind of see the final chapter is the inciting event that led to all the previous Mm -hmm. things you've already read, which was a really cool format. But also like, as you get deeper into the story, you kind of go from, which was for me, a familiar world, which is, Uh, New York and all the stuff that's happening in the States from the perspective of people who have left Haiti to actually having the stories take place in Haiti and showing you how all this stuff originated, which was a really cool format for my perspective. And also just allowed you to, because it was so many different perspectives, there were like eight Mm -hmm. or nine in the whole story. You really got to see some of the, different things that were going on from different oh, people's right. perspectives and how they viewed it, which was a really right. cool way to do it.
0: Yep. I, I agree with you. I mean, just reading just by reading, you learn.
2: Mm-hmm. 100%.
1: Yeah. And I suppose kind of on that note, you know, this is a podcast about world building. So I'd kind of like to dive into that a little bit. Um,
2: <laughs> I'm so excited.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, So I I guess kind of off the top, and we can kind of take this in a lot of different ways. I know that your focus is in Dominican stuff, but I'm going to ask this a little bit more generally so that we can answer it with whatever comes to our minds. You know, we've been talking a little bit here and there about how a lot of mainstream stuff is that English, American, white point of view. And I'm interested, for example, like when it comes to world building for fictional stories, and you, know, you can world build outside of fictional stories, I do want to clarify as well. It's the process of setting that scene and making it believable and uh, really immersing the reader or viewer or whatever media it is into that world. It's just more involved, I suppose, if it's sci-fi or fantasy or something like that. Fiction. Anyway, regardless. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to world building, I'm interested what all of you are interested in seeing uh, more of in the different settings that we use in our stories and what you think we could pull from, you know, different cultures or histories that aren't seen Mm -hmm. as as Mm -hmm. often like uh, Dominican culture.
2: Yeah. I mean, I feel like personally, I think probably a lot of world world builders can relate, but I am someone who just likes to learn all the time about people who are different for me and finding like those underlying themes that we can all relate to. Um, And also just like learning from other perspectives. So yeah, I think that one thing that's really exciting for me is when I can see a story that is not what I've typically seen. Like I, I love tropes and I also love seeing how tropes can be changed and manipulated and made into new things. So when I can see genres uh, veer away from, you know, your typical like, fantasy setting where you have elves and dwarves and you know like the stone castles of like what's it called Franco-Indo-Europe or whatever um when I can see that being changed into like you know other places other perspectives that is just really it's really exciting for me and I you know but I think that's just because that in itself is like somewhat simulating and I also think that there's something really special about like being able to recognize things from my own community as well. Like that, I don't know how to explain it uh, exactly. But like when I see something and I'm like, oh my God, I understand that on like a fundamental level, like because it's like represents something that I grew up with that is like kind of unique to my experience that feels really powerful to me.
1: So it's kind of like the opposite of the fatigue I feel of all the European crap. (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah
2: (laughs) one thing that I've been starting to see recently is I I, I've probably talked about Tomi Ademi's book like five times already on the podcast and I'm gonna talk about her more in future articles as well because I just love her book um (laughs) Children of Blood and Bone but like seeing I also went and like looked at some of her interviews as well online and I I actually also went to her interviews in person which was like really cool but that's also just because I live like really close to New York City so that's you know that just happens because publishing happens in New York City. Anyway, <laughs> off topic. And it's just really cool seeing her talk about um, how um, she's, she's uh, ethnically Nigerian. And she's talking about how her incorporating Nigerian elements into her storytelling was like really, really kind of like eye-opening in a way for herself in like looking at herself and looking at the way that her story adds a unique perspective to her fantasy world building. Um, and I've also seen that in other fantasy settings. Like, for example, in uh, Queen of the Conquered, you have a book that is, takes place during colonialism, or sorry, inspired by colonialism, colonialism in the Caribbean. And it's, and she has a very unique perspective on, like, one thing that stood out to me was the slave dynamic in terms of, like, the main character was a former was her mother had been a slave and then became a slave owner and looking at how that power dynamic shifts and how that still kept her under oppression in the way. And also looking at how her dynamic as being a slave owner and having relationships with her slaves were directly impacted by her experience of, of the whole societal structure of slavery. And it's just like, really, really interesting to look at and something that you don't typically see in Franco-European world building because, or sorry, no, not Franco, Anglo-European world building, because that's not something that's really in that history. It's something that's in that, not only the history of those actual settings, but also the history of like what we have seen written in that genre. And that's something you really only get to look at if you stop focusing on only one place if you stop focusing on only one perspective right you get to see things like perhaps i mean something i would love to see more of is also pre-colonial dominican republic which Mm -hmm. (laughs) you can't really see because like all we know about it is like stuff from uh what's it called Uh, archaeologists because we were the taino were like massacre out of existence basically like there's very few Taino
0: I think Elizabeth Acevedo is writing um about oh really okay
2: I'm gonna have to check that out that's really exciting
0: yeah I don't know Angie do you have anything to say on this so we've I think the last time you and I spoke um I mentioned that there's only like a couple of authors that I have known to delve into even science fiction and that's not very common And I mean, we do have tons of authors that, you know, delve into magical realism. Mm, But when it comes to fantasy and science fiction and all these other genres, I, I think that we're afraid to touch those genres. And I have no idea why. I'm dying for somebody to write about it. There is a young girl who recently reached out to me who has written a book about about a young girl who's a princess in the dr Ooh.
2: yeah
0: and i forget the title of her book she's going through she's going through some issues right oh, now no. with publishing oh no she was reached out by a by a vanity press and she didn't know any better so oh wait what's the vanity int- press i don't know what that is So vanity presses are these people are people who claim that they're publishers, but you have to pay them.
2: Oh, yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. I I went through some stuff with one of those a while back. It was officially, it was called a hybrid press Mm -hmm. where like both parties invested in the product. Um, And I, I worked with them for a little while. They seemed pretty, uh, pretty genuine definitely invested in what mm-hmm. they were doing. But yeah, at the end of the day, I still did have to personally invest in it. And so it wasn't the same kind of situation as like a publisher where they invest in you hundred mm-hmm. uh, percent. Even if right. that hundred percent is not a ton.
0: Yeah. They're not invested in whether you, your book sells or not. Cause you're paying them.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um. So this young girl um the press that she was working with had her create a a GoFundMe to raise $6,000 to publish her book. Oh jeez. And to me that was ludicrous. I was and then I looked them up online and I found all this stuff being written about the press and I sent it to her and I said, "Have you seen this?" And she's like, "Oh my god, this is so alarming." Oh no. <laughs> And she's a very yeah. young girl, you know, and I could, you know, I could very well see how someone who's dying to publish, who's, who doesn't know anything about the way the industry moves or what's going on out there can be taken advantage of. Mm. So sh- her book is actually called Selenia and the Heir to the Throne. Mm. And it's in Dominican Republic. That's
2: really cool. I I'm looking forward to seeing that.
0: Yeah, so am I. <laughs> so, you know, you have these these people who are I guess just now are getting are getting the 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 confidence that they need to put their stories out mm-hmm. there. And it's a lot of fear because a lot of the writers that we mentor, it's just like, oh my god, is people are gonna like it? I'm being vulnerable, um, you know. And it happens. Some you publish a book, and everyone has an opinion.
1: <laughs> yeah, I right? I feel like that that kind of concern can be said for any kind of book. Like that's right. not limited to yes. sci-fi, fantasy, mm-hmm. fiction stuff. Um, in fact, I almost feel like it'd be easier. This is kind of surprising me because I feel like it'd be easier to publish something that is fictional so that right you don't put like your yeah. memoir out there <laughs> or like someone in your family's memoir yeah and then people don't like it and it's like oh well i guess people hate mm-hmm.
0: me <laughs> or you wrote something really and funny. I, um, I, you know, also, I feel people don't take enough time to explore other genres like once they figure out the ones that they like they stick to mm-hmm. it right so yeah
1: i'm definitely guilty of that like the memoir i mentioned i'm reading is the first memoir i've ever read and (laughs) i definitely have no plans to write anything other than fiction
0: right there's people who (laughs) read memoirs there's people who like my mom is one of those people she my mom would never read a fiction book yep right
1: yeah my my father is like that but i've i've got my father to read some fiction in the guise of like it's a comedy about real people who he's read memoirs of
0: <laughs> and how did he end up feeling about it
1: oh he liked it but it was like under that kind of framework of oh i already know who these real people are okay. it's like a spoof of their lives <laughs> and stuff so
0: you so like have to trick him into reading
1: basically <laughs> yeah like so he's not now, gonna go read game of thrones
0: or anything. Our writers or. <laughs> other genres because they will not pick up a book on, on anything else. And here's the thing also. Um, for example, reading in Dominican Republic and writing is not something that is encouraged, right? Um, in DR there isn't a culture of reading. So what happens is that when you have when you have parents here who are raising their first generation, second generation children, those parents are not encouraging reading in their children either because they weren't encouraged to read. So the majority of parents, you know, my mom didn't pick up a book till my mom was in her forties. Right. And, and that's because, you know, the book that she read was a a biography of someone that she used to watch on a talk show. (laughs) And that was the only reason, but it wasn't because she was curious about reading. Right. So that happens a lot within the Dominican culture that we're not taught to read.
2: Yeah. And that's, that's actually, that feels a lot like what I
0: kind of like,
2: uh, have seen as well. My dad is Dominican and my mom is white and my, all of the Dominican uh stories and stuff that I learned was like through like oh, right. going to
0: vocalize well, yeah, but like vocalize the stories
2: yeah like oral storytelling but also like yeah. going and like going to like gaga festivals or stuff like that um mm-hmm. whereas on my mom's side of the, of the family where my mom was like sitting down and reading books to me uh right. as like a childhood thing right and that's like Partially because she's a teacher, but like also partially because like that's Mm -hmm. kind of like a cultural thing in like white America is to read to your
0: children uh, bedtime stories. So, yeah, that's I don't know. I have yet to meet an older generation Dominican that has read a book. Mm or is encouraging or who even encourage their children to read books who weren't teachers or in the educational system who just right. had regular jobs. That is very difficult to find. So mm-hmm. then that carries on into generation after generation until we break that chain. Like my house is full of books. My kid is, um, he's basically done with me. <laughs> and even my mom, when she comes over, she's like, you have more books. Like, oh, I have more books. You know? Part of my job is researching all these authors. So I have tons of books and I'm always ordering books. So, you know, for my, for example, my son is now reading Julia Alvarez in his ELA class. And I was like, do you know who that is? And he's like, you won't stop talking about her. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. My, he's over it. But my kid, I've raised my kid reading, right? And mm-hmm. he'll probably raise his children reading. But... Mm-hmm you know, when it comes to just us as Dominican writers, we're not encouraged to read. So that is not a habit. And right. it is very difficult for us to get them to read, let alone to read something that it's out of their comfort zone, or out of something that they don't know about. Like, if it's not about their culture, and about their history, they, they're they not going to read it.
2: That's, you're gonna make me cry, because I'm thinking about my so. Like when I was talking to my niece and nephew, or sorry, I was, I made a a gift for my niece and nephew and I was like, I'm going to send them books because like, I know that's like not something that we see a lot of. And so I sent them books that were like in Spanish and was like, very like, let me get like, I was really like, I'm going to get them graphic novels. I'm going to get them novels. And it's not like there isn't an interest in like people, when you give them a book, they read it and their worlds expand to like whatever the narrative is in this story, and it's so much fun and engaging. And it's like my sister was telling me, Oh man, like, oh, and my dad was telling me too because he was there at the time. He, they were saying they, he picked up that book and he read it like the whole thing in like a day or two, and I was like, Oh my god, that's amazing! And it's also like, It's because they don't ordinarily have access to these books, right? Like they don't usually have the ability to go read a book because they're just, first of all, there's in that culture, you don't see it really as much. You don't see as many bookstores I feel in the DR as you do in the U S. And so it's not like people who are Dominican don't have the ability to read or don't have the interest to read. It's, I feel more that like we don't have that culture or those opportunities to read. It's just not a
1: consideration. Yeah.
2: And it's, kind of hurts because i'm like i know how much that means to be able to read a book i read books and was like so in love with it and i can see it in my niece and my nephew who are now reading books that you know ordinarily i don't think they would have if i had not been the one to introduce them to it and it's like kind of heartbreaking because like you know i i'm just gonna repeat myself it just means so much to read. It's so fun yeah. and engaging.
0: Yeah. Definitely. I remember as a little girl just sitting in the corner in the library reading all these books. Yeah. Um, there was nothing better for me than and you know to this day there's nothing better for me than being home and reading a book. I still feel that that is life-changing. Um especially when you, you know, it's so hard to get children sometimes, especially boys to read. But once you take the time to help them find what they like, forget about it. It, They'll stick, Mm -hmm. they'll stick with it. You know, I've encouraged my son to read and started him off with comic books, and, you know, you, of course you do the picture books, but when they get older, it's, it becomes a little bit more difficult, but now he reads a lot of graphic novels, which he really enjoys. So I'll buy him books that I know that, that he can relate to because he's a, he's 13 years old and, you know, Oh, I, I tell him about the author. I tell him about the story and he ends up reading the book and I ask him, do you like it? He's like, yeah, it's a really good story. But you got to take the time to find out what your child likes to read. You can't mm-hmm. just shove any book in their face. I mean, I, just in high school, and, and I remember reading books that I was just like, why am I reading Shakespeare? Yes! And, oh, like, my God. <laughs> why am I reading Huckleberry Finn? Like, why? This is, like, why? <laughs> Listen, I have nothing against Shakespeare. I have nothing about, against and- those kind of stuff. Kids but in school, like, when they read these things, they disconnect from reading. Yeah. This is what you're giving them. Yep. One
2: of one of my biggest struggles in high school was at the time I was like uh you know, pretty on and off depressed. And I was really frustrated. Um, I was actually talking to other people who did not have the same experience. I thought that was really weird. But I was really frustrated because like all the stories that we were reading, I mean, since like elementary school middle school high school were all like really depressing stories like characters would like kill themselves and I just like I had this one point where I was just like I couldn't take it anymore and i was just like like in a very heated discussion like completely like changing the course of the entire conversation with my teacher and like distracting the whole class but I just was just so frustrated about feeling so depressed and then not being able to escape that even in my reading. Like, you know, okay, that was a tangent. It was not relevant. Let me stop. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, but it's, it's a valid point. I mean, I remember, you know, now that you mention it, I remember going through and reading all of the Shakespeare, Shakespeare stories, Poe uh, stories, and yeah, uh, the telltale heart was upbeat, but not in the way that <laughs> I think was the most beneficial. Yeah.
0: Right, you're I'm like, who writes like this anymore? Like, I understand yeah. it's a classic, but poetry has changed so much.
2: <laughs> yeah,
1: I feel like th- this. This is kind of remaining in that tangent, but I'll, I'll say it anyway. I, I feel like there needs to be kind of like the standard class format needs to be more modern and then there can be like there can be like a classics version if you're interested in that yeah. as well if you've got like the pop- the student population to support that because i don't think that needs to go away it just in need like i think we need to, to be a little more modernized and like you say to encourage kids to keep reading uh because i remember in high school kind of like your saying ivy like I don't think I enjoyed one of the books that we read until we got to like 1984, which was right. a little a little strange, but definitely an enjoyable mm-hmm. book. Uh, and that was like my senior year. Right?
0: Wow, <laughs> your senior year. Yeah,
1: yeah. Like there were there were other books that were like fine, but I didn't necessarily enjoy them. Like uh, you know the Poe stories, Edgar and Poe. Like those are all fine stories to me, but I'm not personally invested right. in them. So. Okay that. But anyway, <laughs> they're <yeah>. really.
2: <laughs> I, I digress.
1: Like, I'm pretty sure <laughs> the
2: most upbeat story that I read, like in my entire like free college experience was like, or through school, I mean, was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which is like, when you think about it, that's kind of sad. Like, <laughs> I saw the movie. I didn't read the book. Oh, uh, the book is, i mean they're both like the i guess they're pretty similar actually except for like the new netflix adaptation that's just very different but like the, in the book you know it's all about like uh like the oppressive dynamic between the nurses and and the the people who are mm-hmm. there and be, and it's like all about like like a character kills himself and you have like other I I don't remember exactly all the details. I just remember being like, wow, this book is like has like funny moments. And like that's the reason why it's like not the most depressing thing I've ever read, even though it's like incredibly like like really sad. Like if you like think about like all of the different things that are going on in this story. Oh god. I just I have a lot of feelings about this, but this is probably better for a different episode. So (laughs) let me not
1: (laughs) Well to kind of bring us back on track (laughs) thank you Adam talk some more about To to kind of bring us back on track here, uh, to bring it back to world building and the craft of writing and everything, I know we've talked a couple of times, not just today, but in other podcasts and I think even in the magazine, about how world building can exist outside of mm. fiction. And I'd kind of be interested to hear you talk about that a little bit, Angie, because you are more familiar with people Uh, submitting and talking with you about things like memoirs and nonfiction stories i guess generally speaking how do you see world building in that form of just like establishing the setting and bringing the reader into the place that the uh, narrative speaker is in what are some ways you see that being done successfully
0: I mean, I don't know if, we, I, if I could even answer this question. I mean, people are rarely doing world building in fiction, let alone in nonfiction. <laughs> you know, a lot of our writers start by writing children's books, and they write these fictionalized stories with with children, co- um, stories that are culturally relevant, and they do the same when it comes to writing fiction as well, but more more of including realistic or life their own life experiences into these fiction books. So, I don't think I could really share someone off the top of my head right now who has done that. Well, okay. So, like
2: another way to frame it is like like when when you, when a Dominican writer picks picks up a book and they're like, "Oh my god, I understand that," right? Like that's they're eating uh, platanos maduros or something like that like mm-hmm. that can be in a way considered world building because it's immersing the reader oh, in-
0: yeah. but you know what i guess i don't consider it world building because it's my everyday life <laughs> <laughs> that's fair
2: <laughs> that's very
0: fair right? i would i would consider it world building if they're stepping out of that and and, and touching it something different like for example fantasy and and they're using different tropes or whatever and that is what I want to see and what they're not doing much
2: Hmm.
0: right but most of our books they're all it's all relatable stuff it's all our stories that we read with a different twist with a different perspective so I guess that's why I I don't consider it world building because I'm just like oh I did that yesterday Or, or, you know, in Dominicana, I was like, that's my mom's story,
2: mm.
0: you know, and the story of my aunts and, you know, so many other people that I know. So, yeah, that's why I don't connect it to necessarily to world building, but they doing a great job at that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I, I guess a better way to phrase it then might be because I'm, I'm using the term world building just because of what we do here. I, a better way to phrase it might be something to the effect of like how people build the setting and communicate that to the reader.
0: Yeah, I think they they're doing pretty good. And it's mainly because those authors that are doing that very well are the ones who are being traditionally published. So they have professional team um helping them, you know write these stories I mean complete these stories and edit these stories when it comes when it comes to authors who are self-publishing they're they are not you know these are authors who are trying out publishing for the first time so they start with a children's book right and then they or they start with poetry like the majority of self-published authors either start with children or poetry I'm I'm just tired of seeing poetry and I'm just (laughs) dying to explore, you know, other genres. Or they go or they go into, you know, motivational and you know self-help type genre. But Mm -hmm. self-published fiction, the only author that I could really mention that has written a novel of like three books and it's a sci-fi thriller. I can only think of one person who has self-published and did a wonderful job with that. Okay, hmm. who was that? His name is Ariel. Um. Oh Ari- yes, Ariel Garcia. I believe it mm-hmm.
2: is. I think you were um, telling me about him last time we were. Yeah. At-
0: so he wrote the series of book of of um. So I interviewed him. He's in a IGTV. He read some of his book, and we spoke. Uh, we spoke about his his. Writing and you know it's it's this sci-fi thriller and, and 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 it's not common, but he's able to write this because he works in film, mm. right? And then when you're working in film, you're you're exposed to all types of stories.
2: That's true, yeah.
0: right? So I, I think our what our writers lack is like exposure. And trying out different experiences and just reading all kinds of stories and books. Like we yes, I promote Dominican writers, but I also share books that you should be reading.
2: Hmm.
1: Yeah. I guess to kind of branch off of that, to someone who might be listening to this who is interested in getting into that fictional uh storytelling kind of space, I, I wonder where they could begin to pull from the things that they do know and start using that in kind of reimagining that in a new way. Like, for example, um, when I'm working on something that I'm writing, uh, which is, you know, almost always in some fictional setting, I-, I like to kind of use that setting as a thought experiment and just sort of imagine what if X was true or, you know, something worked in a different way what happens if I drop people in this situation, which could not exactly exist in reality. And, you know, the, the history of a culture has many, many points you could jump off of and explore in more detail through a new perspective as well. Like if we look at the history of the Dominican Republic, specifically, you've got everything from the Taino to the colonialism to present day, how things have ended up. I guess my question then, you know, from your perspective and, you know, Zavi, of course, I'm interested in your thoughts mm-hmm. as well. What is a good jumping off point for someone who is interested but new to fictional storytelling?
2: I think the first thing to do always is to find fiction that represents what you kind of want to get into, whether it be a book, whether it be a graphic novel, whether it be a movie or a TV show. I think that like kind of getting to know, like, what's already there in the genre is, like, a great place to start. And then, like, in terms of, like, specifically, like, if you're a Dominican and you want to write something that feel connects more to your history, I think looking also at that history and being, like, how can I incorporate parts of this into my world building, right? So, for example, like, one thing I think about when I think about the Dominican Republic is how colorful the buildings are, right? You have these like bright, vibrant colors that I think are really beautiful, and I think could be like something that would be so, so aesthetically pleasing uh, when incorporated into like a, a fantasy or science fiction setting, or something that I think is really fascinating is how um, Nella Hopkinson in Midnight Robber uh, she includes. Creole into her narrative and I think doing the same thing with Spanglish would be really really interesting to see I think that kind of stuff would be like really really interesting places to start when thinking about how can I get into this how can I start writing in this because it is fun to write in like I love writing this stuff Mm -hmm. so might as well help people get there too
1: And one of my favorite things personally is being able to kind of take things from different cultures and put them together in a Mm. new way. Uh, And, you know, hopefully in a way that makes sense. Like you mentioned the colorful buildings, for example, like that is a detail which you could take and put into a culture that you create for your setting. And like, it doesn't necessarily have to be a Dominican Republic analog, but you know, you've taken a a piece of that culture and are representing it in some way. And, you know, of course, there has to be some level of uh, research and, you know, knowing about what you're showing so that you're not showing something in a bad light or improperly. Because, you know, whenever you do pull things from existing cultures, you have to be careful of that. But being able to have that freedom to mix and match them in different ways is really fun. The current project I'm working on right now, for example, Kind of as a shorthand of how I was going to construct these different cultures was basically like, you know, it's it's this futuristic setting where people have landed on a new planet and colonized it and they've kind of ended up in different places. And, you know, the, the existing cultures from Earth have kind of not necessarily merged, but still somewhat recognizable.
2: Yeah, I feel like that's a really cool perspective especially because like we're americans and a lot of american culture is somewhat like of a hot pot culture and so you see a lot especially in the new york yeah
1: there may be some influence yeah (laughs) especially
2: like like um for people who are like closer to like new york city or la or places that have like historically had a lot of hot pot culture kind of stuff going on it's really cool to see how these cultures overlap and change, and then also like, ooh, how can I do this? Like, how can I make that a thing in my setting? You know, that kind of. Right. I always have right. fun with that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, to go back to your question, Adam, um, and to piggyback to what Savi shared, I agree. Read and research. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's basically it. Read mm-hmm. and research, and I want to add: find a writer's community. Find someone mm-hmm. that's going to a group of folks who are in it just like you, who will encourage you and support you to continue writing, who will share what they're reading with you, and you know that happens to me. And we have a writers group, and we always have you know our writers who are who are reading poetry or who reading or reading things outside of their genre and they come back to the group and say, hey, I really read, I read this. I really liked it. I suggest that you read it. They, you know, they refer it to other people. And that's, I think that's the only way that you're going to learn how to do things differently, incorporate these new techniques and what you're learning into your own writing and, and find writing workshops. I mean, we offer writing workshop, but there's also tons of other organizations who offer these wonderful writing workshops, follow writers on social media. There's writers on social media, even on TikTok and Instagram who are, who are just giving it all for free. <laughs> mm-hmm. And bookstagrammers. Oh my God. Yeah. And grammars is just like really take the Dedicate your time to this craft. Don't just you know. Oh, today I'm just gonna you know look into this, and tomorrow, but really do your research and follow mm-hmm. these people. And you know, instead of you, you know, I tell Dominicans instead of you following the the bar that's selling hookah. <laughs> <laughs> follow books, the grammars. Follow you know, I have books, the grammars bookmarked on on my Instagram. I have you know, librarians and people and book retailers and writers. And, you know, and I I look up hashtags and I favorite that hashtag so that every time it comes up, I get it in my feed. You know, my feed is mostly books, books and writers, because that's what I'm in the business of. And that's what I want to, you know, continue, you know, educating myself about.
1: Another group that I think is really good to follow where you can are uh, anyone who's posting stuff about history
2: mm-hmm. because
1: you know, the, the stories from our past, you know, regardless of whatever culture you look at, um, I, I guess, especially if it's a culture that you're not a part of will be very enlightening for a lot of different articles that we publish at the magazine. Our writers will just kind of do a dive into exploring how different historical cultures have done mm-hmm. things and then kind of just report back and then theorize well how could you use this for a new setting you know we, in recent years we've definitely become almost like a vague creative historical
0: yeah. publication. <laughs> it's an interesting <laughs> evolution it's very important when you want to write because if you want to make sure mm-hmm. that you're getting those facts right you have to do your research Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we're starting Dominican Studies Book Club in February because of that, because we have so many writers, um, first, second, third generation, who are not familiar with our history. Our parents do not talk to us about our history at all. Whenever (laughs) Whenever we ask them about something, they're like, I don't want to talk about that. Or mm-hmm. you know, that was a time that was very difficult, and I don't want to talk about it. You yeah. know, they're traumatized with it. They're traumatized of the Trujillo era, and mm-hmm. so many other things that happened in their country that they have buried that, and they don't share it with us. So we grow up looking like idiots when people t- mention something to us. You know, about our history. About our history, and we have no idea about it. So now, okay, we're going to do this Dominican Studies book club. We're going to read this book, Dominican History, and hopefully you understand your roots and where you come from, and you're n- now able to incorporate that in your writing.
2: To be fair, we do have a really dark history. <laughs> like... Yeah,
0: we do. We just don't talk about it. <laughs> yeah. It's just, you know who, who better to ask than to say to ask our grandparents? Hey, didn't you migrate to the U.S. during the Trujillo era? What was that like? You know, mm-hmm. what was it growing up during that time, that dictatorship? But they will not share. It just won't. Is that generational trauma, man? It just it. It's- yeah, I get it. I get it. But it's just yeah. like we're growing up without our history, and then people look at us like you're not a real Dominican. You don't know anything. Yeah! Oh my God, that happened to me recently.
2: I was yeah, at a, sure. <laughs> I was at like a a, a protest when uh, we had that whole scandal with the Dominican Republic's uh, elections this year, mm-hmm. and uh, this guy was like, "Oh, do you know about this part of our history?" And I was like, uh, "No, tell me about it." And he just looked so angry, and I was like, what? "I'm sorry, <laughs> yeah. I don't know." They look at
0: us like we're stupid. They're like, "What, what do you mean you don't know about this?" And it's because no one is sharing this with us.
1: Yeah. Well, it's unfortunately about that time where we got to start wrapping it up. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) So I think what we'll do is give a couple of closing remarks. Uh, This has been a little bit of a different episode. Normally we talk about whatever the world building topic at hand was, which we kind of varied around a little bit here, so um, <laughs>
2: Sorry.
1: I, that's no, it's totally fine. We got a lot out of it, I think. So I, I guess if we want to each say a couple of final comments on either the publishing industry, which I know we talked about a little bit at the beginning, or we can talk about representing underrepresented cultures. Dominican or otherwise, just our general summary thoughts on any of that, and then we'll just kind of close it off. And I guess that'll be it.
2: Thank you, everyone, for listening to our podcast today. I think we've had like a lot of interesting discussion on both publishing in general, as well as what that looks like for um, underrepresented groups, especially Dominicans, and also looking at how world building is a lot more vast than just one perspective, or at least that it can be when we give more room for other people to speak. And I think I'm personally really excited because I'm starting to see uh, people actually taking voices seriously now, who in the past were typically, like Angie was saying, um, not given like fair treatment or equal resources to tell their stories. So I'm really excited to be seeing more voices being heard uh, in the future. Yeah, I mean, I'm just really excited. It's going to be a really cool and like big, uh, larger perspective for world building and storytelling in general. So yeah, I'm very positive about the future. I'm an optimistic person. What can I say?
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, all that is definitely true. And uh, it kind of brings me to my final point here where because there are so many, more and different voices being uh given a platform to speak on i mean definitely kind of as we've discussed today there's a lot more to do and a longer way to go but things are improving and that makes it a really good time right now between that and the you know everyone pretty much has access to you know writing their blog or publishing stuff online so like you can find Different voices, pretty much anywhere, so long as you're looking for it. And I guess my final comment to relate it to world building and everything if you are looking to create something a little bit different, you know, look to the cultures that are underrepresented and try to represent them well. If you can, talk to people from that culture and learn from them, learn their history and about where they come from, because. Yes. Uh people will understand that European setting pretty well, but it's also not going to grab them in the same way that something unique will. Uh that something they don't see very often will. So, yeah, when when you do have that freedom to create your own setting, you know, make use of it and bring in things that people don't usually see and help represent cultures that are not as well represented and The best way to do that is by reading and learning from those people.
0: Uh, Yeah, I I think you you said it best, Adam. (laughs) What can I add to that? (laughs) (laughs) That was wonderful. I'm just going to reiterate what I've been saying here. Read, research, write. And, you know, our stories matter, representation matter. I don't want anyone to ever feel discouraged because the publishing industry is 74% that our stories don't matter. They do matter. And if you need to self-publish to get your work out there, then do it because it's important.
1: But research who you are self-publishing with first. (laughs) Oh,
0: oh, yes, definitely (laughs) research. You should never have to pay anyone to publish you, my people. <laughs> never, ever. You could pay them to, you know, help you put a book together whatnot, but not publish you. That's a whole other topic. Yeah,
1: pay your editor.
0: Yeah, pay <laughs> your editor, editor, please. A pay, them, pay your whole team who's helping you out, but mm-hmm. you should not be paying a publisher to publish you.
1: All right, well. With that, um, thank you both of you for your time. If you want to mention where people can find you, if they're interested in following you on social media or whatever.
0: Sure. Well, you can find me on DominicanWriters.com and social media, Instagram. I spend a lot of my time there. Dominican Writers as well. Facebook by the same. And Twitter, Dom Writers. So, yeah. And Google us. Google Google them. <laughs> Thank you guys for having me. This was a really interesting experience to be on Discord. <laughs> awesome! Yeah, I'm, welcome. You know, I'm I got you dressed, I put on lip gloss, and then I realized, oh wait. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh man,
0: I'm wearing a nice sweater. <laughs> <laughs> video time. <laughs>
1: we 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 should have done a, a video then and had like a an extra version or something.
0: <laughs> Missed I'm
1: out on in that.
2: My <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, well I'm somewhere between you two in jeans and uh, a t-shirt, so there we go. Hey. <laughs> we,
2: uh, we got it all here.
1: Yeah. Anyway, thank you for listening. Thank you to Angie for coming on and for Xavier for helping set this up. Really appreciate all of that. And we will see you next time. So thank you for listening.
0: Thank you, guys. Thank you for
2: enduring my tangents.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You've been listening to the Worldcasting Podcast, an affiliate production of Worldbuilding Magazine. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can check out our website at worldbuildingmagazine.com, where you can also find links to all of our social media and our Discord server. This episode was edited by J.D. Venner.